Uh, Well, in our continuous exposition of uh, the book of Leviticus, I invite you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 24. We've just come chapter by chapter, uh, week by week, and um, we've come here to, to chapter 24. And uh, one of the things we've tried to tried to keep a, a good pace here through Leviticus chapter 20 through Leviticus, and um, just taking a chapter and a chapter each week. And normally that's okay, but today it, it causes a little bit of a problem. And uh, the problem it causes today is that is that Leviticus 24 doesn't really have um, an overarching theme. Uh, in our small groups, one of the things we've been, been doing is studying the passage that is going to be preached from the pulpit each Sunday. So last week, some groups got together to study this passage, Leviticus 24. And one of the questions that, that we always ask is, what's the big idea of the passage? And uh, when we come to Leviticus 24, we're puzzled by that a little bit because it's difficult to find a big idea. The passage breaks down really into three simple sections. The first comes in verses 1 through 4, speaking about the lampstand and the priest lighting the lamps of the lampstand. The second one comes in verses 5 through 9 and has to do with the the weekly placing of the the showbread on the table. And the last one deals with the story of a man who blasphemed the Lord and the consequences of doing so. Now, there's nothing particularly difficult about each of these sections of Scripture, but what's difficult is when you you try to put them together. And and the problem just might be the way the chapters are arranged, by the way, because it could just be that, say, the first two sections really ought to maybe be an extension of chapter 23, or maybe the first two sections should stand as chapter of them alone, or or maybe the third section of chapter alone. And so the the chapters, I, I remind you, didn't come along until the 1200s. Thousands of years after Moses wrote the, these, these books, and, and it could be the chapter break is different, but for the sake of taking a chapter at a time today, we come to one chapter. And so as a result, my, my message this morning doesn't really have a, a single unified theme, but we'll tackle these sections which are, are able to do so. My title of my message this morning is Lamps, Bread, and Blasphemy. So I I have three points this morning that go along with those. And the first section here, verses 1 through 4. And my point's going to come. It's going to come later. You haven't got the point yet, but it's going to come later for those of you taking notes. Um, But you'll get it. You'll see it. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Leviticus 24, verse 1. Verse 2, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives, for the lamp that is a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It should be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Now these verses talk about how to care for the lampstand that's within the, the tabernacle. And back in, in Exodus 25, God instructed Moses of how exactly to build this lampstand and what I want you to do is just look at this picture on the screen and listen to how Moses was told to build this lampstand. Exodus 25, verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides. 
three branches of a lampstand out of the one side and three branches of a lampstand out of the other side. Three cups be made like olive blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch. And three cups made like an almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. So that's what the lampstand was to be made. And this was to be placed inside the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle was the tent in the tent of meeting, the, the, the formal place there that's covered with these, these covers. I'm talking about the, the tabernacle right there. And in this tabernacle, this lampstand was to be placed. And this, this fabric was over the top of it. And if we pull away the fabric, picture with me now, okay? You've got, we've got the tabernacle, okay? We've got two rooms. We've got the holy place and we've got the most holy place. And inside the holy place, you've got several different instruments. You have there the... Um, uh, you have this lampstand that would sit there right there in the holy place. Um, and the high priest would come into that holy place and would light these lamps on a daily basis. And um, this place inside, picture it, it's just covered with gold. It's kind of so it's, it's lit with, with these lamps, these oil-based lamps, and it's covered with gold. And so there's kind of like this goldish aroma fire around there. So these, these olive plants are burning. It's got some nice golden ambiance in there. And, and, and because the lampstand was the only light in this room, I believe that it was kept burning 24 hours a day. The priest had to continually um, burn it and, and keep these, these lights going. And as we think about then application, there's all sorts of application that people come at this point. People say, okay, well, the lights. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And, and we ought to see in this lampstand that Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So follow this light. Follow Jesus and you'll have life. And another one says that we're the light of the world. Jesus said that. We are the light of the world uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Right? You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, another application to the oil. The Holy Spirit's like oil, and as oil burns, may, may God burn in us with the Spirit. Or, or another application might be the pure oil, right? We want, we want to be pure, pure vessels of God. Because if you see it, it's even in verse 2 about it's pure oil from beaten olives. Uh, or maybe even application might be how the light burns continually. A lot like the, the tabernacles, like Motel 6, right? The light's always on for you. It's not going to go out. We're going to wait for you. God is always there and always ready to hear our, our prayers. Now, these are all well and good, but I would, I, would, I would press you to say that this is just mere symbolism. I mean, anywhere it says light, you can go to that application. I mean, anywhere there's oil, you can just jump to that application. I think there's a better way. I think the better way has to do with what God commanded in this passage. What's unique about this passage, and, and what's unique about this passage is the fact that, that God commanded the people of Israel to come on a daily basis with the, the oil. Look at verse 2. Verse 2, command the people of Israel to bring oil, pure oil, from beaten olives for the lamp, that the lamp may be kept burning regularly. And so, so look, what are the people of Israel to do? They are to bring the oil. And how often is the oil to be brought? It's to be brought every day. In fact, that's my first point here this morning, is daily. Daily you are to bring the oil. And I, I think about the people of Israel, so they would bring this oil... And it was, it was easy enough, the priests could have just got this oil for themselves. They could have beaten the oil for themselves. 
they could have, you know, maybe if they didn't want to do it, they could have told somebody, hey, you, you bring us just, just a bunch of oil and we'll pay you for it. But the priest didn't beat the oil. If you notice in verse 2, it's the responsibility of the people to come and bring the oil for the priests. And I guess that's what, just where I, I look for application here. We ought to come daily to the Lord. And I say that just in light of even the context. What was Leviticus chapter 23 about? It was about the, the yearly celebrations, right? The yearly festivals, the, the feasts, the fall feasts, the spring feasts and the fall feasts. Right? The spring feasts, the, the Passover and the first fruits and the Feast of Weeks and then the fall feasts, the trumpets and the Day of Atonement and the booze. And, and Israel was told you need to keep these solemn assemblies. And it would have been like the rhythm of life, kind of like ours is Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's. And then soon Easter comes in the spring and Memorial Day coming soon, starting summer. And um, the Labor Day ending summer and just and then starts all over again with thanksgiving and christmas and new years and 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 with the commandments of chapter 23 the the thought might be that we just need to come to god at these feasts and god is satisfied with what we do the rhythm of the the jewish life but i think what's happening here is god says no you come on a daily basis there's there's daily coming and communion with god like this oil just needs to be refreshed daily. I mean, the, the priest could have, you know, just a little bit of oil could have put it in there. It's going to burn out. Maybe twice a day they had to come in from evening to morning is what the text says. And then from morning to evening, it's the only light in there. They would have just, just constantly daily had to bring this. And so I just say, come daily to God. Come daily to God. And, and I just say this is applicable to our nation. We're those who's, there are those who religious exercise consists of Christmas and Easter. In fact, such individuals have been given a name. Have you heard the name Creaster? Christmas Easter people, right? And, uh, and I know people like that are just Creasters, they're Christmas Easter people. Uh, some people just think about, you know, it's, it's not just, just these, these times, but even just maybe weekly. Like, I know one man, our, our congregation has been sharing Christ with a coworker. And he says, oh yeah, I've got problems. I just need to go to church. I just need to go to church. Like, going to church is the problem. And that's really not the issue not going to church is a good thing, and we'll see that in our, in our next point. But God wants us to worship Him every day, right? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your might. And the words I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and all your gates. In other words, every day, all the time, you should come to God. Is that not the heart of the hymn that we sung? This is my story, this is my song praising my Savior all the day long. So how are you doing? Is daily your worship of Christ a reality? Do you read the Bible daily? Do you pray to Him throughout the day? Now, none of us really have any excuse at all. We have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, take a pew Bible home and you don't, you've got a Bible. If you want a book, there's books in the library you can take. And I would imagine most of you have shelves filled with books that are never read, that are worthy of being read. With technology, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But with technology, you've got the world. You've got 
the best sermons by the best past preachers in the world at your disposal. <clears throat> Christian radio with internet podcasts, audiobooks. It's not lack of resources. It's lack of heart. So let's walk with God. Let's come to Him daily. I think that's my first point here from the lamps. Well, let's move on. The, the lesson we learn from the bread is, um, is weekly. Real simple. I trust you'll see the same application coming from the showbread. Verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. And it is, catch this, from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Now again, the, the table for the bread is displayed back in Exodus chapter 25. Again, I just want to show you a picture of that. I just want to read through Exodus 25. You'll see how this is shaped as best as we can understand how it goes. The table. So picture this table, okay? This table of, uh, of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length. So two cubits, we're talking 18, three feet. A cubit and a half shall be its width. A cubit shall be its breadth, rather. That's 18 inches. And a cubit and a half its height. So it's just about 27 inches off the ground. It's about 3 feet wide. It's about 18 inches thick. It's not very big. You shall overlay it with pure gold, a molding of gold around it. So it's got this gold around it. You shall make a rim around it, hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. You shall make four rings of gold fastened to the rings of four corners of its legs. So you picture these rings on this table. And, and you put them through with poles. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried by these. If you had a picture, you could see that. Everything just that's where the bread is going to be placed. And then when it came to be placed in the, in the holy place, you just, just picture the holy place. When you, when you walk in, on the left-hand side, there would be the lampstand. On the right-hand side, there would be the table of showbread. And it was arranged, as it says, two stacks, two piles, six in each pile. Verse 6 says, the table of pure gold before the Lord. And so you can imagine the priest coming in and putting these, this bread there, right there, just upon the table. And uh, so you can just kind of picture this little, this little table with this bread on there. Each pile would um, be there, put, put frankincense on this pile, be a memorial portion for the offering, just like the, the grain offering of chapter 2, which we studied months back. The rest of it would be the priests to eat. It's called bread of the presence. And it was to be brought, notice, every Sabbath. Look at verse 8 again. Every Sabbath day. Verse 8. Every Sabbath day is weekly. Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel. The people of Israel were to make this bread and were to bring it to the priest, who then the priest would take it in and put it on this altar and again, I don't think the priests were to make this bread. I think it was the people who were to make this bread and to bring it in to the people. And I think these 12 loaves, say, hey, what's up with the 12 loaves? I think it represents the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember the priest, he has ephod. He had 12 stones in them. On either stones were written the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel as they went into the presence of God. And it was as if God's presence was, or the people's presence was always there with God. 
as they came on a weekly basis. And so I, I, I think about application. And application comes flowing out of these verses, mostly towards just mere symbolism again, right? Bread. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Like, like God is the bread, and so let's go to this bread, which is Jesus, who will, who will truly satisfy us. He'll take away our sins. He'll satisfy us forever, and that's, that's well and good. It's true. Or the application is that our need for bread, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Oh God, we, we need bread. And the bread that sits in the tabernacle is like the daily bread that we need, oh God, each day. Again, those are good. But those, anywhere it mentions bread, you could just kind of launch here. And I think a better application would be to say, okay, so what are the people commanded to do? They're commanded to make this bread and to bring it on a weekly basis. See, there's something about this daily oil, I think this weekly bread, that's significant and helpful for us as we come by way of application. And I think these tribes of Israel every week came... To bring this bread, there's a shadow of a weekly responsibility that we have to come before the Lord every week. Last week we saw it in terms of the festivals. Chapter 3, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, a holy convocation. You should do no work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. And those are day of rest. There still is bread to be made and bread to be brought and bread to be presented before the Lord. And by way of application, I simply want to just bring to you this weekly responsibility of worshiping the Lord. I mean, Sunday morning, we're here. Is it a rhythm in your life? Now, I know I'm I'm preaching the choir this morning, right? Because you're here. But there are some that Sunday morning is not such a weekly rhythm. It's kind of a a convenience rhythm, if if it's good. Well, the, the people couldn't come and say, well, we'll bring the bread if it's convenient. They were to bring the bread weekly, all the time. But I want to affirm to you all, coming here on a weekly basis, it's a good thing. And I would say, never underestimate the profound impact that that will have on your soul. And maybe that's what this man was talking about, I just need to go to church, I need to go to church, I need to go to church because of the impact it's going to be in my life that's going to spread down as we sing God's praise, we pray to God, as we learn from His Word, we're worshiping with God's people, as we fellowship with Him afterwards over lunch like we're going to have today. I would just encourage you to realize that this is a place of blessing, this is a good thing for us, just on a weekly rhythm of life. Um, And I just know that that's just our rhythm. I remember one time, when was it last winter, we canceled church? That was like the strangest, one of the strangest weeks I ever had in my life. Like, I'm not sure if you remember that. But it was like, some, something's like, something's like missing because I didn't have that regular just focus on the Lord. And I think we go on vacation, we, we generally go to a church, not because we have to, but that's the rhythm of life of what we do. This summer, I think we're going to miss, though, a Sunday is kind of what, a, what we might be doing. And it's going to be strange. But there is that rhythm of life of just coming before the Lord just weekly. Now, a, a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, I, I, um, I sent an article to you in the Weekly Word. You know, I always try to give you something at the bottom of the Weekly Word to read. And, and this is what wrote, Joe Thorne wrote, Making the Most of Sunday. And I feel like I'll let him make the point as much as I would, but... 
He said this, corporate worship on the Lord's day is a precious... I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the whole thing, just parts of it. Parts of it, not parts of it. Corporate worship on the Lord's day is precious to the people of God. We're invited to gather together for fellowship with God and one another through both word and sacrament, prayer and song. This gathering is perhaps the most beautiful earthly picture we have of the church as we of differing backgrounds and interests unite together in Jesus Christ. Edmund Clowney put it so well when he wrote, Above all, we must prize the blessing of corporate worship. The church of the Lord gathering for worship marks the pinnacle of our fellowship with the Lord and with one another. The church is the people of God, the new humanity, the beginning of the new creation, a colony of heaven. In corporate worship, we experience the meaning of union with Christ. Yet Sundays can be trying. We're busy and tired from week of labor and activities. And for those families with children, just getting out the door can be a challenge, if not a battle. And we finally sit down in church. We are assaulted with the distractions emerging from our own hearts and minds. I want to encourage you to make the most of corporate worship, not just this weekend, but every weekend, as we look forward to what God will do among us as we gather. Let us remember that there are three ways to get the most out of your Sundays for the church. Prepare, participate, and reflect. Prepare. This talks about just... Just anticipating Sunday rather than just kind of coming in here Sunday morning just kind of, whoa. Then pray for yourself and for the minister that God would give him a mouth to speak and you a heart to hear as you both ought to do. All this before you assemble for public worship. Just praying. You're praying for me. You're praying for yourself. Prepare. Participate. Get there early. Always a struggle for us. You know, we, Ryan, I've told him start 10 o'clock right on the button. I don't care who's here, who's not here. And uh, it's no surprise. Let's get here early. I know it's difficulty with kids, but 10 o'clock. Get there early. Hear the word with eagerness. Sing with your heart to the Lord and to those present. Pray with those who lead in prayer. Follow the preacher. Let the various parts of corporate worship draw you to the triune God. And then go as one who is sent. We, we, we gather here to be edified and encouraged and built up. We go out to evangelize. I'm so encouraged. Prayer meeting this morning. Just we prayed. It. And so many people just reaching out to neighbors around them. I'm so encouraged by that. Because we're, we're equipped here to go and share the gospel. I just encourage you to do that. Prepare, participate, and then reflect. When finally the assembly has been sent out and you're alone or with family or friends, reflect on what's been heralded. Reflect on what's been heard. And return to the word that was preached. Discuss it with others and ask God to continue working in you what he said that day. That's a picture of Sunday morning. You want blessings for Sunday morning? It's more than just attending. It is preparing and participating and reflecting. There's where the, the true benefit is going to come about as you, as you come each Sunday. And, and again, never underestimate the value of that in your life and the lives of your children. All right, well, let's go on to the third point. We've got daily, weekly, and now we come to a topic totally different, but we'll, we'll, we'll take it up. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Beginning in verse 10, we have a sobering story. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed then they brought him to Moses. 
His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be made clear. So picture it, two men fighting in the camp. One man cursed another, invoking the very name of God. Because it's unusual, they took him into custody to brought him to Moses. They said, what should we do? Now, it's unusual for a couple of reasons. First of all, because people didn't speak that way. People didn't blaspheme the name of God. Now, that might be, be totally foreign to our context as we're out there. Right? We hear the name of Jesus used often. You can barely watch a movie without the name of God being blasphemed. You can barely watch television. You can barely watch YouTube clips. Just got to be careful. There's so many things. But we hear it so often. But here it was so strange. I, why would they blaspheme the name? So they caught him. But the second strange thing was that he wasn't an Israelite. He was from a, another tribe. His, his father was Egyptian. His mother was an Israelite. And, and my guess is they met in Egypt when Israel was slaves there. They got married, had a child, and my guess is that dad was left behind in Egypt and mom took the child away. But the boy had learned the ways of his father because that's how it always does, right? That the, the children, for good or bad, learn from their parents. And particularly here, probably learning from his father, who had no regard for the Lord or his ways. And so, what this man heard his father utter, he just repeated. Maybe not even realizing how, how wrong it was. But I say this, parents. Your children will learn from your sins. They will learn from your righteous behavior. You show me godly parents who walk with the Lord, and I will show you fruit in the lives of children. But you show me godless parents who speak with profanity. I'll show you children who speak with profanity. I deal that with that on a, a weekly basis. We have children from the neighborhood I deal with, and kids' club comes in, and the stuff I've heard come from their mouths. We've been shocked. We've stopped everything. We've stopped it. I say, well, "What did you say?" And then they lie because <laughs> they know it's bad. And I say, "This that is that is very bad." And they're just repeating what their fathers have said. What, what parents say behind closed doors, kids aren't discerning enough to say behind closed doors. They say it out in public. Awful. Racist comments, comments against God, and just wrong. But, but that's what this man was doing. And, and the fact this father, this man's father wasn't an Israelite made the, the situation here a, a little bit more dicey, right? Can we, can we hold a foreigner to what you've called us to do uh, in, the, in the third commandment, for breaking the third commandment? The third commandment, of course, right? Do not misuse the name of God, or you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the name of the Lord in vain. So Moses sought God's will. And then we see God speaking. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, as if to say that, yes, this man is guilty. I heard what he said. And let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. 
In other words, there's the emphasis, right? It matters not whether you're an Israelite or whether you're a sojourner. If you blaspheme the name of God, you should be put to death. No excuses, no second chances. To blaspheme God's name, you are worthy of death. That's true of people of God in the church. It's true of people outside the church. And the principle here really is lex talionis, Latin, right? For the law of retribution, the punishment shall fit the crime. The punishment shall fit the crime. And it's what God lays out, beginning in verse 17. And I think he's, he's justifying, he's saying, here's why you need to put this man to death. Because whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as it has done it, as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for a sojourner and for the native. For I am the Lord your God. And there it is. You've heard this before. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. More or less, our judicial system is based on this whole principle, right? If you steal a gumball, you shouldn't be punished as much as the one who stole a car. If you cause a fender bender, you shouldn't be punished or caused to pay that back as the one who sets fire on someone's business, right? And it's the judge's job to weigh, right? What was the crime? Is there guilt or innocence? And then what is an appropriate punishment that would fit that crime, that make it good? And I just say that's an incredibly hard task. First of all, they determine guilt or innocence, and then determine how exactly to deal out the punishment, retribution. Parents, you deal with that all the time. You sit as judges of your children, trying to discern guilt from innocence and trying to discern what it is that, that should be done. But what about, think about the judges. You start getting into all these thorny issues. What about the guy who, who like stole something, squandered it, broke it, whatever, and doesn't have the means to pay it back? How can that be paid back? Jail time, perhaps? Does that really pay for it? Well, what about the guy who killed an animal but can't afford the animal back again? What about the accident? What about, what about an eye that's poked out? Really poke out another eye? Or financially, can that be made up for in the other way? And by the way, Jesus spoke about these laws, right? In Matthew chapter 5, right? When, when, when he spoke about, um, you know, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But he says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. If anyone force you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So is Jesus annulling this commandment? And I would say no. What Jesus is doing is properly applying this commandment. This commandment should not be applied on the personal level. It should be applied in the corporate level. So in other words, personally, boy, you, you, you allow yourself to be defended, defrauded, beaten, taken advantage of, certainly, but you realize that it's the government, the, um, the governing authorities has a civil responsibility. Paul said that, Romans 13. Right? They should be the avenger of those who do evil. Evil should be punished, but good should be rewarded. And so as we, we look at here, this is like the civil responsibility uh, of what to do. It's not, a, it's not a personal vindictive, but it's a matter of greater social justice. There's a different level what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 5. And, and the most difficult of judges to determine comes with this death penalty. Clearly the one should be put to death. Verse 17, whoever takes a human life shall be put to death. And whoever kills a person, verse 21, shall be put to death.
principle there is simply life for life. If you kill, you should be put to death. Yet today, in our day and age, is it that? If you kill, what, 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 what's your punishment most often? Life in prison. And I believe that our society pays the result of that. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, meaning the rest of someone's life, 70 years, never, says the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Because we're not following God's ways. People just murder and murder and murder. Spend their life in prison, which is an awful life, an awful existence. Maybe the punishment is worse in some regards. But still, the, the justice is never, never really served. But I just say in our day and age, it's often life in prison. Why? Because it's hard to put someone to death. And there's a finality about it. There's just, what if I'm wrong? And, and surely people have been put to death who have been wrongly accused. That is, that is for sure. But it's hard. But in this case, it, it might even be harder for us because the blasphemer was to be put to death. In fact, that's what happened. Look at verse 23. They carried it out. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. I want you to grasp this this morning. This is profound, right? Blasphemy is worthy of death. Blasphemy is worthy of of death. You say, well, how, how can that be? Well, I think it, it says, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, blasphemy is worthy for death. The sin of blasphemy is so bad that it is just as equivalent as if we killed somebody. And yet, we don't think it's that bad. We hear it so often, we justify it. Especially when it comes to cursing. There are people who curse as much as they breathe only knew they knew what their sin deserved you use the name of the lord your god in vain or even like this egyptian half egyptian man you use the name of the lord your, of the lord not even necessarily your god in vain and in the culture of of israel they were to be killed and we don't do this today i mean quite frankly because we'd all be dead so widespread is is a sin but maybe this gives you a little insight to Jesus. You remember when the, the Pharisees and Sadducees all said he's blaspheming? He's blaspheming and they wanted to kill him? We might just look at them as religious fanatics, but they understood the third commandment and they understood the consequences of, of blasphemy. See, God is so holy that to speak anything against him is a capital crime. And, and by the way, just even this concept here helps to explain eternal punishment. I was in a conversation as a little small group I have of some men uh, this week. We're talking about the doctrine of eternal punishment. And you say, um, that's a difficult doctrine to swallow. I mean, how can God really punish? How can a God of love punish someone for eternity? Daily torture, forever. And I thought about daily waterboarding. Daily drowning, but, but not, not, not drowning. Just right when you're ready to succumb, they stop the water and you're, you're awake again. <laughs> you're okay. Only to know that that's going to happen another six hours from now. Only know it's going to happen. Another. Jesus described it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't think daily waterboarding is so far off from that. And in our own logic, 
listen, in our own logic, we'd never believe a thing. If you're going to try to see what's right with God with your own logic, you, you won't believe in the doctrine of hell. You won't believe in this lake of fire that burns forever, which all who failed to trust in Jesus will be cast forever. But the Scriptures are clear. The Scriptures speak it clearly. Why do we believe in the doctrine of hell? It's because Scriptures speak of it. Because Jesus spoke of it, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said the anguish of the place is so bad that a man there just longed for just someone to take a dip of a finger into a, into a cup of water and just touch it on the tongue just for a moment's release. That's how bad Jesus painted the picture. Jesus spoke about how those who are the goats, they'll go away to eternal punishment, like punishment eternally. But on the other hand, the sheep, the righteous, into eternal life. And as eternal is the life that we'll enjoy with Jesus, so eternal is the suffering that people experience apart from Him. I just say it's hard to believe such things. Can the punishment really be that bad? Won't God just annihilate them? Won't love went out in the end? I'd love to believe that, but the Scriptures compel me. I can't believe that because it's not what the Bible clearly speaks. Scriptures won't have it. See, what, but what's our fundamental problem as we think about that doctrine? Our fundamental problem is the same as the fundamental problem here. We don't think sin is that bad. And in this case, we don't think blasphemy is that bad. We don't think that blasphemy is worthy of death. But blasphemy is worthy of death. It's only the grace of God that anyone who blasphemes continues to live another moment. In fact, death is the result of all sin. Romans 3.23, right? The wages of sin is... Help me now. The wages of sin is death. Your sin, the wages of that is, is death. And all of us stand guilty deserve to die. Romans 6.23 continues, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good, Ruthie. You've learned your wanna well. And I'll say this, is that, is that the blasphemy is worthy of death. Our sin brings us to death. But Christ is the one who brings us life. And, 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 and Christ isn't specifically here in the eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, this man of blasphemy, but I would say that this whole idea of, of life in Jesus is really our only hope. And there is a gospel right here where it speaks about how bad it is. The only hope we have is, is through Christ. So I just press you to believe in Him. I confess your sins to Him who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, let's pray together and we'll finish this morning. Father, I thank you for the, the grace of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord that though we are dead in our sins, we were dead in our sins, God, yet Christ Jesus has made us alive, having raised us from the dead and seated us up with Him to sit with Him in the heavenly places far above all ruler and dominion that's named now and in the age to come. Lord, I, I pray that we would, we would believe and trust in Christ God, even seeing this, this third point of the sin of blasphemy, God, may, may, we, may we see sin for what it is. And God, may we realize how deep into our souls it's embedded and how we can't reform ourselves or make it up, but we need Christ to make it up. This man blasphemed was stoned, oh God. And I, and I pray for us that we might realize that it's by the grace of God that we would be stoned as well. And I do thank you for the free offer of the 
the gospel of grace that comes in Jesus by simple faith in Him. We can be made right with you. God, what a joyous message that is, and, and I pray it would affect how we live, that we might come to you daily, we might come to you weekly, we might come to you seasonally, God, to worship you with all of our hearts, God, for all of our lives. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.